Welcome to Outdoors with me, Lawrence Gunther. Lily has some super interesting facts to share about snowy owls. I'm going to speak with Jenna White from the Invasive Species Centre about what we need to do to help prevent the spread of invasive species. I've got some tips to share on how to stay upright when walking on ice with your guide dog and a public service announcement about don't let it loose. Talking goldfish. Come on, Lewis, let's go find Lily. Hey, Lily, what do you know about snowy owls? Snowy owls are among the most beautiful and charismatic of raptors, which is why one was chosen to play Harry Potter's pet owl, Hedwig, in the famous film series. Oh, yeah. The heaviest of the North American owls, the snowy owl, is easily recognizable with its rounded head and yellow eyes. Adult males tend to be white, sometimes with darker flecks. Females and immature males have darker coloring mixed in with the white. But they're all white, pretty much. Yeah, which is why they blend into the snow really well. Okay. A group of snowy owls is called a blizzard or a drift. Snowy owls are mostly solitary, so you're unlikely to see large blizzards or drifts of them. The sight would probably stay with you for the rest of your life, though. Wow, yeah, I'm sure. Hey, I remember seeing a snowy owl out for a walk with my dad. It was just on a branch, and we almost walked right underneath it before my dad looked up and goes, Wow, there's a snowy owl sitting right in that branch, like five feet away from us. We stood there for five minutes and watched it. It just stood there on the branch, stock still. And if it wasn't for its eyes moving once in a while, we wouldn't have known if it was even alive. Snowy owls spend summers in far north of North America and Eurasia. Some will stay north for the winter, while others migrate to southern Canada and the northern half of the United States, where they spend their winters. In large parts of North America, snowy owls are eruptive. They'll appear in significant numbers in some winters, but not others. The most recent one in eastern Ontario was in 2020, when hundreds of snowy owls showed up looking for tundra-like landscapes and associated prey. It's weird that animals have these cycles, these natural cycles. Snowy owls were classified as not at risk in 1995 by the Committee of the Status of Endangered Wildlife in Canada. However, the species was recently listed as globally vulnerable by the International Union for Conservation of Nature due to the changes in food availability due to climate change. Unlike most owls, the snowy owl is active during the day, especially at dawn and dusk. It often sits on the vast cornfields of stubble or winter wheat for hours, watching and waiting for prey. This makes it difficult to decipher if we have natural snowy owl behavior or an owl that needs to be rescued. Many people report injured snowy owls and are then later startled when it flies swiftly to another point in the field to continue its hunt. All those little animals just ready to pop out of their holes and meet their demise. The birds face threats from collisions with vehicles, airplanes, communication towers, and wind turbines. An injured or weakened snowy owl will rarely last long in the wild. The birds also need to conserve energy, and while you may want to see them fly or get closer to them to take a picture, you're putting them in great jeopardy of losing their next meal and expanding much-needed energy. So, you know, be respectful, keep your distance, and make a call if you feel the animal could be injured or weak. The public plays a vital role in locating, capturing, and transporting injured wildlife to specially trained, often volunteer wildlife rehabilitators. Rehabilitation Center treats and care for the patients brought to them. But it is the first responders, the public, who are the key actors in the process through their quick action to contain the animal and telephone for help. This is the crucial time for rescue. Generally, you have little chance of finding an injured animal again if you abandon it. It's recommended that you stay with the injured animal if possible, or collect the animal and take it to a safe, warm location and find help. Here are three suggestions for finding wildlife rehabilitators in your area. One, Google wildlife rescue organizations in your area. Two, contact your local humane society, veterinarians, and the police. And three, 
Post your personal Facebook page to enlist your network to find appropriate care. Hey, Lily, thanks a lot for all this. And today we've got a special guest. Uh, We've been working for a while now with the Invasive Species Center, and we've got Jenna White. She's the Program Development Coordinator. Thanks so much for having me, Lawrence. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. So our main goal is to, you know, protect uh, lands and waters from the the second greatest threat to biodiversity globally. The second biggest threat to biodiversity. Wow. And the first one would be? Habitat loss. So something that uh, the Invasive Species Center has been working on for the last uh, few years, pet release, that, you know, domestic pets, including uh, fish, invertebrates, frogs, turtles, mammals, or aquatic plants, Um, can be released into the wild by uh, their owners. There's also uh, the live food market, um, so some species that can be released there. And another one we've talked about is the white bucket, right? People who think they know better and they think, wow, I'd love to have smallmouth bass in this lake. And they go somewhere where there's smallmouth bass. They they bring, you know, four or five, uh, transport them illegally because transporting live fish like that from one water body to another, you need a permit but they don't get permits and they release them into other water bodies. And the spread of smallmouth bass through Atlantic Canada is just epic. I mean, it's just leapfrogging from lake to lake to lake. And a lot of people wouldn't think of as invasive species, you know, when they don't think of smallmouth bass, but when you move them to a new ecosystem, they're now an invasive species and, and, and it's causing a lot of, you know, catastrophe in, in lakes that were, normally dominated by trout. We're really just destabilizing thousands and thousands of years of evolution. Absolutely. And I think the key um, aspect that that really is important, um, it's, you know, the intentional release of a species. Like even as simple as a, a bait bucket at the end of the day, you know, ice fishing, you're out there on the ice and, and uh, you've got some minnows left in your bait bucket. The temptation just to dump them into the hole where you've been fishing all day and say, okay, you get a free meal, whoever's down there, help yourself buffet. But you're really, you're, you're introducing a whole bunch of live minnows into a water body and, and they might not be native. You think you're doing the fish a favor by giving them food, but you could be destabilizing the ecosystem there as well. But let's, let's talk about goldfish because this is, I think, a, a huge problem too. And this is a pet release issue that um, a lot of people own aquariums. You know, I have one here too. We, our family has one and we love it. And um, there's nothing wrong with having aquariums and, and enjoying fish and getting to know and learn about fish and their behaviors. It, it, you can learn a lot from having an aquarium, but you know, getting rid of aquariums and you see so many of them on Kijiji for sale. There, you know, people don't maybe want to move. They can't keep it anymore. Their children's lost interest. So what do you do with the fish? Well, you don't flush them down the toilet. You don't release them into the storm drain. You don't go down to the local creek and let them go. You know, you might think you're doing a good thing, but my God, there's a real issue out there, isn't there? Because I just came back from Edmonton um, and the problem out in Alberta is is pretty significant. The spread of, of goldfish is actually, it's it's quite a broad problem. You know, goldfish yeah. are, are native to uh, different parts of uh, Asia and they were actually probably the earliest species, aquatic species uh, that was introduced uh, to North America. 
um, which actually dates back to as far as, you know, 960, <laughs> like the year 960. Wow. People have owned them as pets for a long time, but we're really starting to notice in the last few years that there's really been this growth in, in a problem uh, with goldfish. And, and some people have attributed this to climate change. Um, but one of the most, they are one of the most common species to be released. And, and I would attribute this as well to being accessible. You know, you can purchase uh, goldfish anywhere. Uh, you know, I've got a pet store down the street. You can buy a goldfish. And, you know, a lot of people aren't thinking about that long-term uh, responsibility uh, that comes with them. So just, just to dive into a few of the issues with, with goldfish. Um, yeah. So, you know, they obviously uh, compete with native species uh, for habitat resources um, and all sorts of, you know, things that other species would require to live. Um, they increase the turbidity of, of water systems, so that, that really contributes to the water quality and can actually um, also contribute to increases in algae blooms. So we don't want those, and I'm sure, you know, many anglers can, um, you know, uh, understand the issues with, with that. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. They lay, you know, hundreds of uh, hundreds to thousands of eggs at a time, um, which is, you know, the epitome of an invasive species, right? They um, reproduce so quickly that, that native species can't keep up uh, to that level of reproduction. Um, and they also can spread disease. You know, uh, there's different diseases that uh, carp species have that other native species don't have. So this is this is something else that, you know, we definitely don't want to see. Um, and so, uh, you know, wetlands and other natural water bodies really don't need this added pressure of a new introduced species um, that's, that's just out competing everything else. Um, so as much as, you know, a lot of people don't think that releasing, you know, a single goldfish is an issue, it can definitely have a huge impact uh, on the environment, for sure. Even a, a lake up in um, North Bay, Ontario, Trout mm -hmm. Lake has a has a goldfish population, and you would think that's pretty far north, right? That and that lake is quite cold. It's a deep lake, and yet they're they're thriving in there. And you would think more it's more of the you know warmer, shallower ponds, but mm -hmm. they're a hardy fish, aren't they? They really are, and this is something that I don't think a lot of people recognize is they actually have the capacity to overwinter. And this is something, you know, even in stormwater ponds, a lot of uh, goldfish populations are in those stormwater ponds, uh, in subdivisions um, behind people's houses where there are poor water conditions, like, you know, otherwise traditionally where species would survive, as you mentioned, with low oxygen. And they do have the capacity to survive in that. And as, as we've just discussed too, the temperature range that they can survive in is very, very broad. And so this causes, you know, additional issues um, because they are so hardy. Um, and one of the, the groups that we work with, you know, in Alberta even tried to um, drain the pond so that, that the goldfish wouldn't survive um, without the water in the pond. And they actually uh, were able to, to bury themselves in the mud and survive that way. Um, so that, that form of eradication wasn't successful. Wow. So really you're down to uh, chemical treatment of, of the water and uh, killing off everything in, in that pond or lake and then starting over again. And, and you see this, it's, it's happening in different parts of North America now more and more in the treatment of invasive species where people are turning to that drastic measure of, of poisoning water bodies to, to get rid of uh, invasive species in the, the Miramichi watershed in New Brunswick, you know, Atlantic salmon federation, 
has been actively, you know, poisoning the Miramichi watershed there to get rid of smallmouth bass because they say they're eating the Atlantic salmon smolts. And uh, it's it's a controversial thing for sure when, when you have to take that measure. No one's happy about having to do that. But, you know, drastic issues call for drastic measures, I guess. But it's just something to keep in mind. A simple little, you know, aquarium pet can end up with a whole ecosystem being poisoned and killed off and then uh, having to rebuild it from scratch. The treatment that's typically used for for goldfish is called rotenone and it's a a natural chemical. And so it doesn't harm other, you know, mammal uh, or bird populations or humans. Um, But it is still, you know, something that is never, it's never a good thing to have to kind of intervene in otherwise natural ecosystems. Municipalities are having to choose these kind of options. There's ecological impacts. There's social impacts in terms of, you know, our ability to go fishing where we want to go fishing and and catch the fish that we want to catch. And uh, there's economic impacts as well. You have a guide business. If you're looking at tourism you know that can that can all go south on you if if invasive species take over a water body. You know, I, I think of the Great Lakes. It's a nine and a half billion dollars Canadian freshwater fishery, and and only about three hundred fifty million of that is uh, commercial fishing. So the rest of it is is rec- is recreational angling, and and if we lose the salmon, we lose the steelhead, you know, the lake trout to Asian carp. You know, I don't think that that fishing industry would survive. I don't think people would spend that kind of money to chase Asian carp. Not to mention the fact that Asian carp are probably not easy to catch because they're filter feeders for the most part. Even common carp that were introduced over 100 years ago into North America can disturb wetlands and, and uh, you know, weed beds. And th- when they're rooting around looking for grubs and things to eat, they, the, the roots of the plants are disturbed and, and uh, are killed. And and you have whole, whole wetland systems that are being, you know, degraded from their feeding activity. And, you know, I know on the St. Lawrence River, you can have a, a thousand carp coming through as one school and moving into a bay. And you go into that bay and it's just the water is pure brown it's all stirred up from their from their uh, feeding activity and uh, you go back a few days later and you see you know a lot of the weeds are gone they're just floating away dead it's it's quite incredible the destructive power of a of a, a school of carp a lot of our issues with aquatics in particular aquatic invasive species are really hard to monitor um and it's it's something that you know uh, like i say anglers are really important for but you know when the invasion gets to the point where you can see it, as you mentioned, with the brown water and the turbidity and everything's all disturbed. Then that's when we really started to notice the problem. And we really want to try to prevent um, us getting to that point because it's something that, you know, once it's there, it's really, really difficult to manage. So the bait management now in Ontario, you know, there's the restriction on uh, live bait dumping. And this is because uh, invasive species can actually be mistaken for different bait fish species. And um, if it isn't used uh, during the course of, of an angling opportunity, then and it's released, then it can absolutely um, have an impact on uh, a different different water body. So the idea of this um, bait management program is to really prevent, you know, accidental release of invasive species um, or introduction of non-native species to different lakes. I don't think we realize how destabilizing this can all be when we're when we're fishing with live bait. Yeah, again, just a little tiny minnow. How can this be a problem, right? It, it just boggles the mind. 
You want to talk to us a bit about reporting, Jenna? We are asking um, um, anglers to be on the lookout for uh, goldfish um, because we do want to be able to understand their distribution. Um, because, as I mentioned, it's something that's so commonplace that people may not feel the need to report it, but we absolutely want to see uh, increased reporting so that we can inform our management decisions um, and and just have a better idea of, of what the scope of the problem really is. Because, you know, invasive species, as I mentioned, really obscure uh, when they're aquatic species and we otherwise have no idea that they're there. Um, but we, we need to understand the spread in order to kind of communicate that to, to, to people um, and facilitate some outreach programs and, and also management programs watching over and seeing if there's shifts in the ecosystems that are occurring and noticing that that's a real citizen science kind of role all anglers can play you know what's changed you know from this year versus last year and if you see changes happening over a period of time that's worth reporting as well because something is is behind that and you know knowing and getting to understand what is causing those changes is you know that can also identify an invasive species uh, culprit behind all that as well Absolutely. Um, and the role of citizen uh, and community science is really key um, in making sure that we're monitoring. You know, we can't be everywhere at once as much as, uh, you know, we'd like to be. Um, and so it really helps to have those eyes out there, um, uh, keeping an eye on things. But, um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, the Invasive Species Centre actually had the um, ability to go to uh, the COP15 conference, which was uh, the Biodiversity Convention, UN Biodiversity Convention's uh, 15th Conference of the Parties on Biodiversity. And this was one of the key knowledge gaps that they identified was uh, that we don't have a real baseline number um, that helps monitor uh, invasive species so that we can be aware of, you know, what the new introductions mean and, and kind of what level of species uh, problems we actually have to date. And so this is one thing that we're, we're working on, you know, is to try to improve monitoring in Ontario and in Canada. Um, and another, you know, uh, story here that I, I did want to share kind of on the monitoring front um, is, is related to, to an angler who actually uh, stopped somebody from, from releasing a goldfish into a pond. And that was a really great, uh, you know, story to hear about somebody who's uh, being that citizen, somebody who is aware of invasive species and who was able to kind of stop that introduction. So we do, you know, if there's that prevention front, but there's also the, clearly somebody is is keeping an eye on things and, and we love to see that. Conserve and protect. We hear about that a lot now with the, a lot of these marine protection areas being established and, and, and those values of, you know, we have to step up and become stewards. You know, we have to look after these ecosystems. You know, they give us so much pleasure. They give us so much uh, benefits from food, from just connecting with nature from distressing, uh, you know, a safe place to recreate with our family, a place to, you know, connect with friends. Mm -hmm. we, you know, we take so much from our outdoor activity, you know, to be able to give back and, and uh, make sure it's healthy. Cause if it's not healthy, we're, we're not going to get those benefits. And uh, so it's, it's a two way street for sure. Anglers and other uh, outdoor recreational users are really play important roles in invasive species prevention and, and it's something that we really try to frame positively because you can have a very positive impact on uh, different, the environments that you're using by just being aware of, of your surroundings and being uh, able to identify different species and know what was there one year that, that wasn't another. And, and you know, it's, it's really great to see 
uh, when people are able to do that. And and it's something that we really, really like to promote to make sure that we're protecting these spaces. So how can people find out more about this? Uh, so you can visit uh, invasivespeciescenter.ca. That's our homepage. And on, uh, you know, in our website, we actually have a lot of resources on identification of invasive species, uh, reporting mechanisms. And uh, in this particular program that I'm leading, uh, we also have a lot of information on Don't Let It Loose. So if you are a pet owner um, or you own a goldfish and you need uh, a little bit of support in, in trying to deal with it at the end of its life um, in terms of, you know, where to rehome, uh, there's some information kind of on some suggestions to do that. You know, I, I just thinking about aquariums again, and, and we've, we've had some fish that we bought that didn't turn out to be as social as we were hoping in our tank, our community in our tank. So, but you know the aquariums where we deal with they they have a return policy. You can bring any fish back at any time, and they'll actually buy it back from you. And you know they, they put it in a monitoring tank, and and they'll find it a new home. So don't you know th- th- these programs are out there by the private sector. So if you're dealing with an aquarium business, make sure you're dealing with one that offers that that possibility as well. So you can you don't have to think, oh, okay, what are we going to do with this fish, kids? You know, it's because you know no one wants to see a toss that one out in the compost pile. I mean, kids aren't that um, happy when that happens, but you know, there is a cycle of life for sure. But uh, being able to find those fish new homes is always a better solution. Yes, absolutely. We, we definitely support that kind of, uh, you know, when you're, when you're done with it, either yeah, return it, uh, give it to a friend. Actually heard of uh, that kind of narrative recently um, within my uh, social realm that, that somebody had given their fish to a friend. It's, it's always a great option. Um, anything, but, uh, but don't let it loose. <laughs> no, don't let it loose. No, that's <laughs> a good word to end on. Thank you, Jenna White from the Invasive Species Center. For almost 40 years, I've had the honor and pleasure of walking around out there with a guide dog. You know, living in Canada, a lot of that time is spent walking on ice in the wintertime. That handle on the guide dog, it's like your own personal grab bar. If you're falling back or away from the dog, you pull back on that handle and the dog uses their weight to keep you from falling backwards. If you're falling towards a dog or forward, the dog braces himself and you push down on their back and it can support you and keep you from going over. They get to know this and appreciate this and they get to be very leery about black ice because they know you could be falling and taking them down with you. But remember, at the beginning of every winter, there's probably a chance that your dog has forgotten about black ice and you're going to be walking along thinking there's nothing wrong and step on that black ice and your dog's going to have quite the surprise and you're going to have quite the surprise. So remember, at the beginning of the winter season, when you're coming up with some black ice, make a big show. Make sure your dog understands that this stuff is slippery, it's destabilizing, and they'll remember, oh yeah, black ice, watch out. Wearing ice cleats is a tricky call. I'm not a big fan for a couple reasons. One is I don't want to injure my dog's paws. So if I'm going to wear them, I find the ones that have the little coily springs on the bottom or the tiny little metal divots. I certainly don't wear the ones with the big teeth. The other reason I don't like cleats that much is because your dog gets used to you wearing them. You get confident with your cleats on and you just march through black ice as if it didn't exist and your dog thinks too. 
Man, they're just flying over black ice. I don't need to worry about this anymore. Of course, your dog doesn't know when you're not wearing the cleats. And after getting used to you wearing them, he's going to bring you onto the ice at some point. You're going to have a different pair of shoes on and you're going to go for a spill. You can't blame the dog for that, though. They don't understand when you have the cleats on or off. Here's a public service announcement produced for the Invasive Species Centre. It's about goldfish. I'm Lawrence Gunther, and this is another Bluefish Canada Stewardship Tip. Anglers across Canada are reporting increasing numbers of invasive species. Aquarium pets released into the wild are impacting entire ecosystems. Help prevent the spread of invasive species. Rehome unwanted aquarium pets or return them to the store. As a last resort, consult with experts on how to humanely euthanize aquarium fish. Remember, don't let it loose. For more information about invasive species, visit the Invasive Species Centre. And for more information about fishing sustainably, visit Bluefish Canada. Follow me on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram or visit me at lawrencegunther.com to keep up to date on my blogs and videos. Subscribe to get the latest episodes of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther by visiting your favourite podcast provider. And please take some time to rank us and give us some comments. Send me your feedback, suggestions and questions at feedback at ami.ca. Mark Aflalo is our technical producer. The manager of AMI-audio is Andy Frank. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hajar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.